Welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Our opening music today is the Light Cavalry Overture, uh, the overture to Franz von Supp's operetta Light Cavalry, which premiered in Vienna in 1866. This music was played at the opening broadcast of medium wave station WSB in Atlanta, Georgia in 1922. And we'll be telling you a lot more about WSB on today's program. This program was researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 678 for release on Sunday, February 20th, 2022. On the program today, the world's first radio weddings, part one. AWA in Australia, Snowy Mountains Radio, and Bangladesh DX Report. In our program today, we provide an answer to the probing question, what was the first radio wedding? That is, a real-time wedding with a new husband and a new wife that was broadcast live over a radio broadcasting station. As an answer, we examine a claim that was listed in a historic resume for the medium wave station WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. Ray Robinson has that story. Thanks, Jeff. The wireless call sign WSB was first applied to the spark equipment aboard the coastal steamer SS Francis H. Leggett, which was in use with the timber trade along the west coast of the United States. The Leggett was the flagship of the Hammonds Timber Company, which owned ultimately a flotilla of 72 similar ships. The Leggett ship was the largest in the timber trade along the west coast of the United States back a hundred years ago, and it became famous for towing timber rafts up to 700 feet long and 60 feet wide. On September 17, 1914, the SS Francis H. Leggett steamed out of Grays Harbour bound for San Francisco, with an overload of wooden railroad ties lashed to the top deck. Next day, during an unexpected autumnal storm with winds up to 60 miles an hour, the load of wooden railroad ties began to shift, causing the ship to capsize and sink. The Leggett's chief wireless operator sent out an emergency distress signal, which was picked up by a nearby Japanese naval vessel, the cruiser Izumo. However, the Japanese cruiser did not head towards the stricken Leggett because a German cruiser, the SMS Leipzig, was in the area and the Japanese vessel didn't wish to meet the German ship in an armed encounter. The two nations were hostile enemies during World War I. However, the Japanese Izumo did relay the distress signal to other ships, including the oil tanker Buck and the steamer Beaver. Both ships responded to the call for help, but by the time they arrived on the scene, the Francis H. Leggett had sunk, leaving only its cargo of railroad ties still afloat. Two passengers from the Francis H. Leggett were rescued. One of the survivors, Alexander Farrell, explained that the storm swamped both of the ship's lifeboats as soon as they were lowered. Both survivors lived by clinging to wooden railroad ties. The death toll of 60 crew and passengers makes it Oregon's worst maritime disaster on record. The two Marconi wireless operators, Clifton J. Fleming and Harry F. Otto, both young men, died as a result of that shipping accident and both have been honoured for their devotion to duty. 
Then the SS Firewood was an American coastal cargo and passenger ship that plied the west coast of the Americas, and subsequently the wireless equipment on this ship was allocated the same recycled call sign WSB. On December 19, 1919, that wooden ship, the SS Firewood, caught fire off the coast of Peru in South America. However, all 28 personnel aboard were safely rescued before the ship finally sank. The new radio broadcasting station in Atlanta, Georgia, WSB, was launched during the early evening of Wednesday, March 15, 1922, and their opening music was a gramophone recording of the Light Cavalry Overture by Franz von Soup, the opening music you heard in this edition of Wavescan. This is how it all happened. There were two competing newspapers in 1922, the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution. Each was planning to open a radio broadcasting station, and each was hoping to be first. The Journal established a makeshift studio on the fifth floor of its building at 7 Forsyth Street in Atlanta. They'd ordered a commercially made transmitter, but there was a delay in delivery. As a temporary fill-in, the Journal bought an amateur-made transmitter from amateur radio operator Gordon Height, and they got it ready to go on air just as soon as a licence was received from the Department of Commerce. By special arrangement, when the Journal received their initial broadcasting licence by telegraph from the Department of Commerce during the day, they were ready that same evening to go on air. That inaugural historic broadcast on 360 metres, 833 kHz, took place on Wednesday, March 15, 1922. Their official identification was the randomly assigned and recycled callsign WSB. The Constitution station, WGM, made its debut two days later, on March 17, 1922. An official history of the radio broadcasting station WSB in Atlanta, Georgia, shows the broadcast of a wedding later in the same year, on Friday, December 8, 1922, and the entry states that this was the first wedding on radio. Of course, we know from last week's item about 2MT in Rittle, England, that it was not, because 2MT had already broadcast live the wedding of Princess Mary and the Earl of Harwood, Henry Lascelles, on February 28, 1922, more than nine months previously. So we can be charitable and say that the December wedding carried by WSB was likely the first wedding on radio in the United States. It's probable that this particular wedding was conducted in the new three-year-old First Presbyterian Church at 1328 Peachtree Street Northeast in Atlanta. The services from this church were already on the air each Sunday morning from radio station WSB. No further information is available about that particular wedding, though station WSB did broadcast another wedding in the middle of the following year, 1923. On Tuesday evening, June the 19th, 1923, listeners were surprised when suddenly and unannounced they heard live wedding music coming from the First Presbyterian Church with Dr. Charles A. Sheldon seated at the organ. The wedding was celebrated in the home of the prominent businessman Samuel M. Inman, also on Peachtree Street, and a string orchestra blended with the radio music coming from the church. On that occasion, the son of the Inman family, Hugh, was wedded with Miss Mildred M. Cooper. And we'll have more about early radio weddings in a future edition of Wavescan.
Thank you, Ray, but don't go away because you're going to be telling us about Snowy Mountains Radio in just a few minutes. First, let's go to our Bangladesh DX report with Salahuddin Dolar. Dear listeners and radio hobbyists, welcome you to February 2022 edition of Bangladesh DX report in Webiscan. This is Salahuddin Dolar from Ratshahi, Bangladesh. Glad to be back and thanks for listening. 21st February is the International Mother Language Day. We remember the heroic sons who sacrificed their lives to save their mother tongue. Bangladesh Beta News Due to renovation work, Bangladesh Beta Dhaka has suspended its medium wave transmission on 693 kHz since February 1, 2022. A 1000 kW transmitter, feeder line and antenna will be renovated. So during this time, February 1st to April 30, 2022, program will be broadcasted on 819 kHz using 100 kW transmitter. Now the receiving log of different radio stations. February 1st, 2022. Radio Tehran Bengali service report on political issue by OM was heard at 1530 UTC on 9620 kHz. The SIO code was 433. New country broadcasting Sae Nala via Tasken Korean program ending announcement was heard at 1755 UTC on 5925 kHz, the SIO code was 333. February 4, 2022, Voice of America via Thailand Rohingya program interview with refugee in Kutupalam camp was heard at 1145 UTC on 12125 kHz, the SIO code was 4. 4, 4. Radio, France, uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Uzbek service, discussion about Afghanistan was heard at 1445 UTC on 12045 kHz. The SIO code was 343. Radio Romania International, Romanian service, music was heard at 1508 UTC on 11975 kHz, the SIO code was 433. Adventist World Radio Bots Boon, Turkish service, OM speaking was heard at 1512 UTC on 11965 kHz, the SIO code was 333. Republic of Yemen Radio Jeddah, Arabic service was heard at 1516 UTC on 11860 kHz. The SIO code was 343. Trans World Radio Africa Somali language Christian lecture by OM was heard at 1522 UTC on 11780 kHz. The SIO code was 433. Al-Azim Radio Zedda Arabic Devotional Music by Male Singer was heard at 1531 UTC on 11745 kHz. The SIO code was 
Myanmar Radio Barbies Music was heard at 5025kHzsiocode.3433bbc.aldhabba.arabicnews.com Okay, I will come with more DX news in the next edition. Till then, take care. Salauddin Dollar, Ratshahi, Bangladesh. Thank you, Salahuddin. As we mentioned in Wayscan two weeks back, the AWA radio company in Australia published a lengthy document in 1927 under the title Radio Guide 1927. This document provided some very interesting radio information that was otherwise not widely known in Australia. One of the feature articles in this document tells the story of Snowy Mountains Radio, a small network of communication stations that were on the air in the southern regional areas of the Australian state of New South Wales. Ray Robinson has that story. Thanks, Jeff. The Snowy Mountain Scheme involved the hydroelectric generation of electric power and the downstream irrigation of water for use in farming areas. The Barren Jack Hydroelectric Scheme was a significant part of the overall Snowy Mountain Scheme, which was the largest engineering project in the history of Australia. The name Barren Jack was the nearest English pronunciation for the Aboriginal name of the area. During the year 1927, work was underway on the installation of a small network of local shortwave communication stations in the Barren Jack area. The headquarters station was installed in Gundagai, a small town that is nowadays quite famous as a tourist destination. Among the many tourist attractions in Gundagai is the famous statue of the dog on the tucker box, commemorating the faithfulness of a sheepdog back in the colonial era. 
You can also visit the Pioneer Museum and the Truck Museum, as well as the reminders associated with the raucous wartime radio serial Dad and Dave, with its fictitious radio station 2SG. The headquarters station for the Baranjak Communication Network was 2GI in Gundagai, with the two indicating the state of New South Wales, followed by the first and last letters of the familiar town name Gundagai. Station 2MM was already installed at Mistake Creek, though that station was soon to be relocated to Murrumburra. The call sign 2MM was the first letter of its two locations, Mistake Creek and Murrumburra. Station 2CA was also already installed at Sawmill Camp, though that station was soon to be relocated to Kutamundra. The call sign 2CA indicated the first and last letters of its new location, Kutamundra. Plans were also underway for the installation of an additional transmitter at Baron Jack itself, together with five additional mobile transmitters for installation on industrial trucks. The call sign 2BD at this location indicated the first letters of the first and last names Baron Jack Dam. All of that extensive transmission equipment was provided by AWA. The Baron Jack transmitter 2BD was rated at 2 kilowatts, and the other units 2GI, 2MM and 2CA were each rated at half a kilowatt. All of those communication units operated on low-frequency shortwave, just above the standard medium-wave band. Even before the entire network was taken into full service, emergency communication was made between 2GI in Gundagai with 2MM at Mistake Creek. Coordination was required in the fighting of a bushfire that was nearing Mistake Creek. We'll have more from the 1927 AWA publication about outback radio in isolated country locations in two weeks' time. As you know, we often feature items on Wavescan about radio history, and I thought it might be interesting to play this clip from an early edition of Radio Netherlands Media Network. It was originally broadcast exactly 40 years ago on the 19th of February 1982, and features comments from a listener in Katowice, Poland, about the realities of trying to listen to shortwave radio broadcasts back then. There are even a few seconds of a very young-sounding Jonathan Marks. Here are the translated comments of the listener in Poland. Shortwave listening is very popular in Eastern Bloc countries because of the information blackout in local media. In some countries, it's also the only possibility of contact with the external world. So, as a result, people are twiddling across the bands looking for reliable information in spite of jamming and lack of appropriate equipment. In fact, I feel it's the equipment problem that's the most serious. There are no Polish-made receivers designed specifically for shortwave reception, and the coverage of shortwave range is very limited on those you can get. Popular ones cover 6 to 9 MHz, more sophisticated type 6 to 15 MHz, and only rarely do you see sets with 6 to 21 MHz, and they are expensive. All Soviet receivers made for the USSR market are, however, limited from the upper side of the spectrum, their coverage not exceeding 12 MHz. This is probably due to the fact that the Soviet skywave jamming on higher frequencies could be ineffective because of the low maximum usable frequency value after the sunset over the USSR, and the high value on the western side of the day-night border. 
Once, when I visited a market square in the USSR, I saw a man walking across the crowd and shouting from time to time, 13 metres, 13 metres, and I was told that he was offering for sale a receiver covering 13 metre bands. In Hungary and the German Democratic Republic, however, you can purchase a good shortwave radio like a Grundig satellite, but as they are very expensive, not many people can actually afford them. So mostly used receivers are popular, portables or domestic types. Another problem is the language barrier. Not many people speak one of the major international languages well enough to enjoy listening to broadcasts in one of those tongues. Though this doesn't apply, of course, to audiences in the German Democratic Republic, resulting in relatively high number of shortwave listeners in that country, even though they have easy access to Western media. So, for the major part of the audience here, the use of shortwave is limited to listening to broadcasts in their own language. You know, however, how much the shortwave spectrum is polluted by powerful jammers, even deteriorating reception conditions of stations they're not intending to jam, such as Radio Moscow World Service. So you can perhaps imagine how discouraging may be the experience for someone who has a simple desire for listening to, for example, the BBC News, in his own language, and can hear nothing but a buzzing noise on the given frequency. The recent jamming of Polish-language broadcasts from the BBC or Voice of America is curious from my location. It's not local at all, and therefore I suspect that, as you suggested some time ago, the deliberate interference is coming from outside our borders. But the shortwave listener has to work rather like a blind man. You don't know that Europe number one is a station in West Germany or that Radio Canada International is on at such and such a time until you've actually built up your own programme schedule. Material from stations hardly ever gets through, and books such as the World Radio and TV Handbook are only a dream. The situation, as far as Poland was concerned, for receiving literature from the West, was better before martial law. In fact, letters I sent did actually get through, but now the situation is completely different. Perhaps, then, it's not surprising that, although there is a large number of shortwave listeners here, few have the desire to contact stations or have a go at receiving more distant stations in Africa or Asia. Well, that comment about prices is quite relevant, in fact. Recently, while I was in West Berlin, I made a trip across the border into the Eastern Communist Zone and walked around the huge department stores. Sure enough, in the electrical goods section, I found radio receivers, most of them made in East Germany, but a few also from Japan. The GDR-made RFT-R2300 was a rugged-looking battery main set, resembling the large portables in the West. It had long, medium and short wave, with coverage from 49 to 25 metres, VHF2, and a price tag of 775 East German marks. But if you're earning around 1,000 German marks a month, then shortwave radios are certainly classed as very luxury goods. The Japanese receiver, with a built-in cassette recorder, and what we would class as very poor shortwave performance, came out at 2,870 East German marks, about one and a half times the price of a colour television set. The situation appears similar in Czechoslovakia, as this correspondent writes from Prague. It's possible to buy shortwave receivers in Czechoslovakia, but the design of the shortwave section in the set is only mediocre. Most sets cover the 49, 41 and 31 metre bands, 
but the best, the Tesla Sopran, goes all the way up to 21 megahertz. But the problem is the cost. The average salary in Prague, which is a little higher than for the rest of the country, is 2,500 karuna a month, and the Czech-made Tesla costs 4,500 karuna. A friend of mine asked how much it would cost to import a receiver from West Germany, which incidentally is perfectly legal. The price for a Grundig 2400 was quoted at 12,000 karuna, and I've seen a national Panasonic DR26 on sale in a window for 8,000 karuna. So equipment can be found, but it's beyond most people's price bracket. And that's why a lot of people use military surplus receivers or simply find something on the black market. A short segment there from an edition of Media Network broadcast on the 19th of February 1982. So even though there's still a lot wrong with the world today, it's interesting to reflect on how much has changed in human society over the intervening 40 years. I wonder what the next 40 will bring. Jeff? Thank you very much. Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. There's a scene that lingers in my memory Of an old bush home and friends I long to see Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Our closing music today from the ultimate Australian songbook, Along the Road to Gundagai. This program was researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson. Next week on WaveScan, we'll have the radio broadcasting scene before KDKA and our Australian DX report. Several QSL cards are available for the program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for WaveScan to the AWR address in Bangkok, Thailand. I'll give you in a moment. And also to the station that your radio is tuned to. WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa or to IRRS Italy or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in the program. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. The email address for other correspondence to Wavescan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. Till next week, good listening, everyone. When I get there, I'll be a kid again. I'll never have a thought of grief or pain. 